again this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Salvador. My wife died. We um, deserted this church to go to South Africa. So, <laughs> um, but it, it's always like coming back home. God's given us a big family. I'm just going to start with prayer and then we'll go into the word. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that your word is true, that you are the God of truth, that you expose the truth, that you unveil our eyes, that you speak to our hearts, that you show us the condition of our own souls. But Lord, that you are the God who also applies the healing balm to our injuries that you make clean that which is dirty, that you redeem that which is lost, and you fix that which is broken, and you replace that which is not of you with that which is of you. Thank you, Lord God, that you have not bandaged up our hearts. You've given us a new heart. You've given us a new nature. And thank you, Lord, as um, one person put it, you don't give us a new start in life but rather you give us a new life to start. And I just thank you, Lord God, that you, nothing is too difficult for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, can we turn to 1 Timothy 4, verse 16? 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. While you're turning there, Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy in chapter 1, he says that he told Timothy to remain on at Ephesus in order to instruct certain people not to teach what was wrong. And the wrong teaching that we find in the book of 1 Timothy is a mixture of different things. Firstly, it says in the first chapter that these people wanted to be teachers of the law. There's a Judaistic element, but it is not Judaism as was practiced in the land of Israel. This is a Judaism mixed with Greek thinking, Greek culture, where things that are physical are evil. And so um, in 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 2 verse 18, it says that they were denying that the resurrection had taken place. Why would they do that? Because everything physical is evil in their way of thinking. And so... Um, you can't have a physical resurrection, so they started to spiritualize it. Well, it's already happened because when you were dead in Christ, you, you accepted Christ and you became alive. So you've been raised from the dead. It's spiritualized. They were two branches of this kind of way of thinking that developed in the early church. One was what we call antinomian. They believe that everything physical is evil and all physical pleasure is evil, but your soul will not be affected by anything sinful. Therefore, sin doesn't matter. Your soul will still be saved. And that was um, like the hyper grace thing that we have today. God's not here to convict you of your sin. If you are saved and born again, you know, convictions for the unbeliever, not for the believer. You're in grace. It's like that hyper grace. The other manifestation of this way of thinking was what we call ascetism. 
And that's because everything physical is evil and physical pleasure is evil, therefore you shouldn't get married. Because with, physical, with marriage, there's um, physical intimacy, which comes with pleasure. You shouldn't um, enjoy, really enjoy your food. You should really try and um, eat very little and don't enjoy pleasurable food. Live quite an austere life, almost like a monk, <laughs> away from society. Not that they lived away from society, but it's that kind of concept. And this is what 1 Timothy was hitting against. They were, it says that they forbid men to marry. They um, have long fasts. And Paul has to say to Timothy, bodily discipline is, has a little benefit. But godliness is what is really beneficial. In, we see in Acts 20 verse 30, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders in Miletus on his way to Jerusalem. And he's warning them of the very things that are happening in this letter. He says to them that from among your own men will arise some who will lead away the disciples speaking perverse things. And this, is, this started to happen in the, in the Ephesian church. And so Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to teach that. The problem is that Timothy's a young man compared to the other men. Um, now, there's a guy called Gordon Fee. He reckons Timothy would have been somewhere between 30 and 35. I don't know that. But even if he was in his early 30s, he's still younger than the elder, the elders. And they would have looked down on him for that. In that culture, if you're older, you deserve more respect. And so... And you've got this complex situation where, you know, we think of the church of Ephesus. Well, they met in the local hall and they all had a, a, a big meeting together. They were meeting in homes. He actually instructs, he says in, um, where is it? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He says, I want the men in every place to pray. He actually says in, to the Corinthians, uh, um, that the church that meets in Aquila and Prissa's house greets them. They had a home church in Corinth, they had a home church in Ephesus, and they had a home church in Rome. And so when you realize the meeting in these groups, according to Craig Keener, who wrote a monumental commentary on the book of Acts, he claims that Roman homes at the time only took up to 40 people. So if you're, if you're 41 people... You're busting the seams of the home. And so now what are you going to do if you grow? You're going to divide. So think about that. You've got all these elders in lots of different home churches, all in the church in Ephesus. And Timothy's got to deal with this false teaching. When you have division of smaller groups, very easy. It's much, well, I guess it's easy anyway, but I think it's much easier to engage in politics. One group against another group. And he's got to deal with all of this. How's he going to deal with it? And this is how Paul tells him to deal with it. 1 Timothy 4 verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. I'll read it again. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, 
You will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. There's three things I want to look at this morning. Firstly, that to take, he's to take pains with himself, with his life. Taking heed is possibly a little bit light. This, this is more than um, paying attention. It's paying close attention. It's more than a passing glance. It's a focused, intentional, purposeful look at something with the objective that I've got to deal with this. And so it's, 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 it's not something that's going to happen as it happens. Timothy's got to make sure it happens in his life. He's got to pay close attention to his life. Secondly, he's got to pay close attention to his teaching. And thirdly, he's got to persevere in these things. So pay close attention to your life. Why would Timothy need to pay close attention to his life? And we all have different answers. We know that one day we'll give an account to the Lord. We know that um, the Lord watches everything that we do, even when other people are not watching. We know that also actions have implications. But the three things that I want to pull out about this point that are relevant to Timothy. Firstly, by showing forth a good example, he would silence the opponents. First, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 11 and 12, in relation to the fact that he's got to point out that this kind of asceticism, this harsh treatment of the body, it's not really that beneficial. There's a little bit of benefit, but really godliness is what they need to focus on, not long fasts and abstaining from marriage and all that kind of stuff. And so he tells them in verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. And then he says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. So he's telling them, telling Timothy, Timothy, don't let them look down on you for your youthfulness. So how's Timothy supposed to do that? Is he supposed to stand up and say, how dare you criticize me that I am younger than you? Who do you think you are? No. He actually says, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. But in contrast to that, it says, Show yourself an example in five areas. What you say, that the speech should be godly. There shouldn't be, in our context, there shouldn't be the F word. Because what do we do when we use language like that? We take something that is holy, something that God has created, that is, that is in the confines of marriage, and we degrade it, and we debase it, and we dishonor God. And so our speech should resemble or should point to the God that we represent. Our speech should be clean. It should be edifying. It should be, um, it should at times say blunt words as we heard today. Um, like I, I'm very grateful for blunt words that say it the way it is. And it doesn't mean we, we have to be hard-hearted as we say those words, but it's the reality. We have a, a leadership that cares nothing for God, nothing for God's ways. It's the reality. 
Our speech should represent Christ in many or all, as much as the facets of Christ's character as we, we can, but, as, but we should strive to be like Christ in everything. So in speech, in conduct, the way that we conduct ourselves, the way we behave, when people see us, they should see the character of Christ in what we do. It says in love. That we should have a concern and a commitment to the body of Christ. Jesus says, by this, all men shall know that you love me, or that you are my disciples, by the love that you have one for the other. And so, Jesus doesn't say the world will know by your articulation of doctrine. He says the world will know by the love that you have for one another. And love has to be defined biblically. And love is the genuine concern for the welfare of the other. Even to a point where it is selfless. Jesus says, greater love has not a man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, and you are my friends if you do what I tell you to do. In other words, he's saying greater love has no one than Jesus himself. No one has greater love than Jesus He's the one that laid down his life. But then he says, but I want you to do what I tell you to do, which is to follow him and become like him. So he's the perfect example. So it says love. And then it says, I've got to find the verse again. Um, Faith. And faith exists on different levels. Faith is has to be defined biblically. What we believe has to line up with Scripture. But at the same time, you'll, you notice that Peter calls, talks about the trials of faith being more precious than gold, even though it's refined in the fire. Trials of faith. Trials expose faith and the lack of faith. When Daniel was told, if you worship if you worship anyone except the king, you're going to the lion's den. He went to the lion's den. When Nebuchadnezzar turned around to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said, I'll give you another chance. If you worship my idol, my statue, it will go well with you. But if you don't, there is one decree for you. The fire. And he even made it seven times hotter. So much so that the people throwing them in the fire died. And so faith gets tried, and it's in the reality of the trial that we get exposed for what we are. So faith is not just an act of believing, faith is faithfulness to God. The word faith, both in Hebrew and in Greek, both means faith and faithfulness. So it means that we must continue in faith. Biblical faith is present tense continuous. It's not, I believe, five years ago. And so when he says, show yourself an example in faith, what he's saying is the consistency of your walk with the Lord, that when you encounter those trials, you get shown to be someone who has faith. And then it says, um, faith and purity. And that doesn't need much comment there. But those five things were to characterize him so that when the people, the, the people with the other doctrine point the finger at him, he doesn't need to, even need to give his defense. His track record speaks for him. 
that um, even somebody else in the congregation, I can imagine, when they hear them turning around saying, this Timothy, look, he doesn't have the life experience of these people. He's timid. We see that in 2 Timothy. Paul has to tell him, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a love and power and a side mind. And he has to remind Timothy, stir up the gift that's within you. Now, that's not kind of fatalistic. Well, if God's got his hand in his life, God's going to work. That's Paul saying to Timothy, you need to stir up the gift that's in you. Why does Paul say that? Because Timothy was not the bravest not the most able, not the most um, um, charismatic person you come across, but he had Paul's heart, and he was faithful, and Paul had to encourage him, which is an encouragement for us. Because isn't it true that sometimes we like, I can't do that. No, that's not something I can do. I can't, I can't, you know, some people are called to the front to speak, and they are able to speak, but they speak down on themselves and say, well, I'm not a good teacher, but are you faithful? Are you walking with the Lord? Can you articulate what God's doing in your life? And can you articulate what the word of God says? You don't have to be the best. You just have to be faithful. Do you have Christ's heart? Timothy had Paul's heart. Timothy was more than just a servant of God. Timothy was like a son to Paul. And he actually trusted Timothy where he wouldn't trust anybody else. Look at Moses and Aaron. Moses thought he could deliver Israel. And he spends 40 years in the wilderness and his confidence is knocked. At the end of that 40 years, God calls him to Egypt to deliver God's people. And he's like, I've never been able to speak. I'm not good. I'm not a good speaker. And he, he, he tests God so much that God in the end actually gives, gives in and says, well, here's Aaron, your brother's coming, he'll be your prophet. But who led the people of Israel in building a golden calf? It was Aaron, not Moses. The one who was most gifted and most abled was not the most faithful. And that's what God's looking at, the faithfulness of his servants, but his servants need to be encouraged. And so what I can imagine someone turning around saying, well, he's timid. He's not, he's not got the experience that we have got looking down. And somebody else says, yeah, but I see the Lord in his life and he's doing a, a, a far more than you are doing. That's his defense, is his, his, his character, his walk. And it's not just his walk shown in a moment of trial. It's the consistency of his walk before a watching body. Secondly, it's also important for discipleship. I was listening to a, a, a he was a Baptist preacher from the States. He was in um, South Africa and he said this statement, it's always stayed with me. And I find it both really, like I like it, but it's also very challenging at the same time. And he said, you teach what you know but you reproduce what you are. You teach what you know, but you reproduce what you are. And that's so true. When you look at fathers and children, or you see children generally, you'll see them trying to mimic their heroes. We actually had um, Asimbonge when we lived at the homestead, and, and um, there are no other children around. It's just him and what we call Gogo, grandmother. 
And Grogo is old, and she's her bones are aching, and she struggles to stand up, and she struggles to sit down. So when she sits down, she sits down with a sigh. She's <sighs> so. Guess what? Little Asimbonge does. He sits down. <sighs> he just copies her. And this is what discipleship is about. In fact, if we look at the idea of the teaching ministry. It's really epitomized by Ezra. If we turn to Ezra 7 verse 10. Ezra 7 verse 10. Ezra is going back to Israel. Israel's been in exile under Cyrus. They can go back. And Ezra is sent to help them be established in the ways of the Lord. He's a priest. He's also a scribe. And it says, For Ezra had set his heart. That's very intentional. That's like, I am committing to do this. This is, this is the reason I am there. I've set my heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Firstly, studying. That's more than just doing your five minutes of reading. If you think, like, I know nothing about carpentry, but I can imagine if I was with a carpenter and, and doing it, and I was hacking away at a piece of wood, the guy would turn around and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, like easy. Like, you don't need to move the tools like that. Do it like this. Sometimes we need to hack away at certain things. I remember working in fencing and hacking away at... Um, cement, that, concrete that had to be broken up. But when you're doing something that takes skill, you've got to do it cautiously, carefully, you've got to do it right. And Dai's dad, I always hear Dai's father through Dai. It's like, if you're going to do a job, do it properly. <laughs> so don't just hack away at the piece of wood. Take some care. Do we hack away at God's word? Get my five minutes in, let's get this done. All right, I read it, now get on with my life. Or do I handle God's word with care? Do I pay attention? Do I read scripture in light of scripture? Paul says to Timothy, study to show yourself approved. As a workman, handling correctly the word of God, rightly dividing the word of God. We've got to prove ourselves, especially in the teaching ministry, but all of us, with God's word. And in our conversations, as we challenge each other, our weaknesses get exposed, and we can deal with those weaknesses. We can, oh, I'm going to have to look at that. Let me go back and look at this. Oh, you were right. Or, no, I'm still not seeing it. But we, we need to shape each other and challenge each other. But we need to study God's word and understand it. But then it says to practice it. Notice it between study and teaching, it says practice. And Jesus said to the apostles, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then he says, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. The discipleship structure in the Bible was not like, you know, we think sometimes discipleship is like come at four o'clock in the 
afternoon or six o'clock and we're going to do an hour together and go through some material. And those things were part of discipleship. A rabbi who got disciples would have times where he'd sit down with them and they would sit in the dust at his feet and then he would speak and then he would ask them questions and they would answer. And he'd say, I like that answer, but I don't like that answer. This one was good because of this, this, and this. In that discursive way of discipling, the rabbi could also learn from the students. Mostly students learning from the rabbi. But sometimes the rabbis exclaim, I learned something from you. Because it wasn't a monologue, it was a dialogue. But there were those times of formal study. But other times... The rabbi would go to wash his hands and the disciples would follow him and see how he would wash his hands. Sometimes we have this idea that rabbis and Pharisees were just heady people. They were just academics, just in the head. No. Rabbis and Pharisees were all about life. They were like, how do you do this? How should you do this feast? How should you tithe? How should you... So much so that they built up a whole bunch of laws about how to even wash your hands before, and you had to do it this way and that way. It was all about life and the way you live, but it was external. And so for a rabbi, like you think of, there's a rabbi in Acts called Gamaliel. His grandfather was called Hillel, famous rabbi in Israel. And one day he was off, somewhere, and someone said, oh, Hillel, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to the toilet. Oh, no, he said, I'm going to perform a commandment. And he said, which commandment? I'm going to the bathroom. It's like, is that a commandment? Yes, that the body not waste away. Rabbi, where are you going? I'm going to perform a commandment. What commandment is that? I'm going to have a bath. Is that a commandment? Yes, if Solomon's temple was ordained and beautified, how much more this temple the concept here is study of the Bible is not to get knowledge. Study the Bible is to live the life that's pleasing to God. And the rabbis thought they pleased God more than anybody. And Jesus showed them their weak spots. Because in creating all these laws, certain bits of the Bible that they didn't like, they find an argument to, to say, well, we don't need to keep that bit. <laughs> so... They're like, just like us. We're just the same. So practicing leads to teaching. Practicing leads to teaching because discipleship is not simply learn what I have to say, but it's copy what I do. And so discipleship is the Saturday night or the Thursday night or the Thursday, Saturday afternoon. But it's also... Come with me, let's go to this place together. It's living life together and showing forth an example that someone can copy. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 15 to 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 15 to 17. It says, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ... Tutors were the slaves that took your kids to school, that made sure they behaved, that they did their homework. They're the tutors. Yet you would not have many fathers, 
The difference between a tutor and a father, a tutor is someone who keeps you in line, but a father is someone you emulate. Father, the son one day will be like the father. That's discipleship. That's why Paul will speak to Timothy and say, my son in the faith. He's not saying like, I have the title father. He's saying the relationship between me and you is as such that I am training you to be like me. As, and look what he says. You don't have many fathers. He says, in, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel because he preached the gospel and they got saved. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my teachings, of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. It's not information teaching. Information is important, but it's of the ways you live your life. And so, without the example, without the righteous godly example, the disciples that follow will follow an ungodly example. Because you become like the person you follow and you become like the God that you worship. So if we present a different view of Christ in our lives, we'll reproduce that different view of Christ in other people's lives. Secondly, pay, pay close attention to your teaching. I was in Freyheit, which in 2002, I was with a couple called Caleb and Sophie, when we were in a completely Zulu area and we didn't know anybody. We didn't really speak Zulu at that time at all. And then we tried to connect with certain people and someone said there was a meeting at the Presbyterian church with people from different churches. So we went there and we heard the, par the pastor there turn around and say, we've had enough preaching. We don't need preaching, it's been done. What we need is good works. What we need is to do, help people, support people. And I would say, that's a lie. It's often said and attributed to Francis of Assisi, this phrase, it says, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. It's a lie. On different accounts, one, um, it's questionable as to whether Francis of Assisi ever said that. Because you know what Francis Assisi did everywhere he went? He preached. And um, one article I read, they actually said what he was really saying was, make sure your life fits your teaching. Make sure you live up to what you're telling other people. That's what he was saying. But it's also false to say, if necessary, use words. You can't preach if you're not using words. Because every time we see the word preach in the Bible, it's always words. So what do we see in, in Romans chapter 10? Romans chapter 10, verse 14. It says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So they've got to call on the name of Jesus. But how can they call on Jesus if they don't believe in him? And then it says, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? 
Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet who bring good news of good things. And then it says, it quotes from Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our report. Everywhere in the Bible, when there's preaching, there's words. You don't, you can't preach with your life. We demonstrate the truth with our lives. But we preach with our words. It has to be verbal. And, and that's not comfortable in a society, modern society, postmodern society such as ours. Our society loves good works. They love it. Just turn on Seven Sharp. Kiwi of the month. And they love when the, the Salvation Army are feeding the poor. But what they cannot stand is someone saying, but Jesus is the only way to God. What they cannot stand is saying, God made them male and female. That's the sticking point. If we just do good works and we do not speak, no one's convicted. Because it's like, well, the main thing is doing good works. That's the most important thing. Yeah, you believe in your God, but the most important thing is that. And we actually have to say, actually, I disagree with you. It's not the most important thing. It's important, but it's not the most important thing. The Bible says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second one. Number one is God. And then the person will go, ah, whatever. You know, like walk off. But they're confronted. But there can be no confrontation without, without witness. Because the person down the road does, also does good works. And people turn around and say, look at what he's doing. And the Bible says, all our righteousness done in the flesh is as filthy garments before God. That it, even though it's good and it looks good and it's good by human standards, before God it doesn't, it's not good enough. And so we have social gospel, which is basically saying we extend the kingdom by doing good things, feeding the poor, getting rid of poverty. And there's a section of the church that's so focused on that that the preaching of the gospel is taking a back burner. In the Salvation Army, there are people in the Salvation Army that preach the gospel, and they know the gospel. But there's also a lot that it's not about the gospel for them. Our local Salvation Army church, where I was in South Africa, they have people in their church following ancestors, but they wear the Salvation Army uniform, but they sacrifice the ancestors and many people overlook it. A lot of people think in that situation, they think, well, as long as I've got the uniform, I'm okay with God. So we need to speak. We need to teach. And sometimes we judge people when they preach because we feel their manner is wrong or their motive is wrong. But I think that those people are a challenge to us because they're out there doing it. It's very easy to say, well, you're making us look bad. But the question is, are you out there doing it? I'm not saying everyone has to stand on a street corner and preach, but is everyone, as Kirsten was witnessing today, is, is wonderful, and as this, our sister was witnessing today, verbal witness doesn't have to be on a street corner, but verbal witness. But am I doing that? Paul was in a situation where people were preaching from wrong motives the gospel. 
and they were doing it to get at him, you know? So if we go to Philippians 1, verse 15, Paul's in house arrest in Rome. This is around the time of Acts chapter 28. And, um, and he's asking, you know, he, he wants the gospel to go out. And he's saying, my imprisonments embolden people to go out and preach. And then in verse 15, he says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. It's like really malicious. Ah, I'm going to preach. Paul's trapped in that house arrest. I'm going to preach and make him feel bad. Motives completely wrong. When they stand before God one day, it will count for nothing in terms of their standing before God. But what does Paul say? No, sort out your motives first, then get out and preach. No, he actually says, what then? Verse 18. Only that in every way, Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. He's like, the message they're preaching, it's the gospel. Fantastic. Yeah, they they don't like me. Yes, they think I'm going to weep and think, feel sorry for myself here in this prison while they're out preaching and looking good. Doesn't matter. People are hearing the gospel. Fantastic. But getting back to Timothy, verbal proclamation, it's not just verbal proclamation that's important, it's the content of what we speak that is important. We need to make sure that what we teach and what we say lines up with the word of God. Why? Because the implications of wrong teaching will result in some way in wrong life. I think it it was A.W. Tozer who said that a a people will never exceed their conception of God. And that for the gospel to really impact and really make headway, God has to be presented as majestic and holy. And he's got to be a high God. He's got to be a God that You know, when you stand in his presence, you fear because he is awesome. Not awesome like a a, a surfer awesome. Oh, awesome, man. But like awesome in instilling that sense of gravitas, that sense of how huge God is and how small I am. He's majestic. He is beyond compare. He is a God that even the angels cover their face and cover their feet and they see they don't cease by saying holy 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 and it's not boring to them because of who they're saying it to that's the god that is expressed in biblical doctrine if we turn quickly to Romans chapter 6 verse 6:17 to 18 
And it says, but thanks be to God, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So just break this down. Thanks be to God, you were slaves of sin, that's your life before Christ, but you became obedient from the heart, that's them turning to Christ. And they says, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That phrase to which you were committed means that they didn't necessarily commit themselves to the teaching, but somebody else, i.e. God, committed them to that teaching, and that teaching owns them. If you're committed to prison, you're put in prison. It's something that's been done to you. So God has committed them, he's handed them over to the form of teaching. And the form of teaching means it's the type of teaching or the, the mold of teaching. In other words, that teaching, it's not like I, it's not just I have the teaching, it's also the teaching has me. And I'm put in the mold of that teaching and that teaching shapes me. So if the teaching's wrong and the mold is wrong, the shape that that mold is going to create is going to be wrong. So if I have a low estimation of God, I'm going to behave likewise. It's going to impact me. So lastly, persevere in these things. And I'm just going to use this just to, just to conclude. But we're to persevere. The Ephesians... They persevered in the doctrine. With Paul's help and with Timothy's help, they rooted out people who called themselves apostles and they found them to be false and then became very zealous on that line. We see that in Revelation chapter 2. But what they didn't persevere in is the first love. And, and I find that, I don't know about you, I think it's true of everybody, but I find that it's easy to do one thing consistently if you're only focusing on that one thing. But it's very difficult to balance everything at the same time. And it's and God has a way of making this an issue in our lives. Peter talks about it, that the trial of your faith being more precious, and he, t and he talks about the need to persevere in the trial. Because the trial is where we get exposed. And I just think about the last two weeks. And, um, I, you know, I came out to support Di. That's why, we, that's why we're helped. And, and um, there's times that it's like, what kind of support am I? And there's times when Di's down. And I've been dealing with it well. And then you crack. The cracks start to form. What And what the cracks do is they show you how useless you are. And I'm not saying that in a self-pity way, like I'm just useless. I'm meaning that as a fact. I am useless in those situations. But it's not me that is sufficient. It's Christ. 
And I can wallow in pity and lick my wounds and say, I'm such a useless person. Or I can turn to Christ and say, I'm not able, but you are. The perseverance is the long haul. It's easy to be brave in a moment in time. But it's hard to maintain it and sustain it through the various situations that we go through. Just look at two scriptures. John 15 verses 4 to 5 says this. I'm the vine, you are the, vine, you are the branches. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't think we believe that. We believe it at times. We believe it in the church meeting. But in particular situations, we don't believe that because we don't rely on the Lord. When we don't rely on the Lord, it's evidence that we're not believing that apart from him, we can do nothing. So it's in the situation when the cracks surface that expose the weaknesses in our lives to bring us back to Christ. The second scripture I want to look at is Colossians. Colossians chapter Colossians chapter 1 and verse let's go from verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do share I do my share on behalf of his body which is his church and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So he's basically saying, I'm so glad I'm doing more than my fair share in suffering for Christ because more than my fair share, he's, he's making up for the lack which is in the rest of the church. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to, to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Someone said, look to yourself and you'll find despair, but look to Christ and you find him and everything that is in him. It's in him alone that we have sufficiency. It actually says in verse 12 of chapter 1, we give thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has qualified us. Imagine going to Massey University, enrolling for a three-year, four-year course, and they give you your degree up front. That, that would be well, I know what I would do. I'd say, take the certificate, don't do the course. But because but, I, I know I do that because I've done, not done that with a course, but, <laughs> but I, I, I got an unconditional offer for, for a degree. And so did I study for my A-level exams? No, I'm gonna, I've got an unconditional offer. I'm in whether I pass or not. So let me ease off now. That's what I, so that's why I'm saying I do that. But that's exactly what the Lord does. He gives us the certificate first, and then we do the course. But the certificate's not a piece of paper. The certificate is Christ himself. 
He is our qualification. He is our sufficiency. He's the one that makes us acceptable. And in the basis of the qualification, it's saying, now you live the life. But you live the life because you've been qualified to live the life. But how are you qualified? Through Christ. So the only way that that qualification will have any bearing is if Christ is the one that's empowering us and sustaining us and strengthening us. And therefore, if I rely on myself and think I'm able, I'm sure to fail. And when I pass the test, I pass a test, and I feel really good about myself, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to fall. Rather, give thanks to God. And say, God, help me not to take my eyes off you. Sometimes the test of adversity causes us to fail. And sometimes our successes and the blessings God gives us in our lives cause us to fail. Just as they did with Israel. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. And so in all things, he's the only one that can help us to persevere in taking heed to our life. And taking heed to our teaching. Let's pray. Father, we are imperfect vessels through which you perfect your power. And Lord, either you are true or you are a lie. And we believe with all our hearts that you are the truth. And if you are the truth, then you do perfect your power through our weakness. And Lord, forgive us for doubting you. Forgive us for having too much self-focus on our own weaknesses and inadequacies and sense of inferiority. Lord, there are so many opportunities that we've had to share your name and we've not taken them. Motions that you've roused in our hearts to go and speak or to do that we were too cowardly to obey. But Lord, I just thank you for the testimonies that we've heard this morning of people that took the opportunity and were obedient. And Lord, the same God you are in them is the same God you are in us. And you are able, well able. Lord, you strengthen us according to your magnificent might. And Lord, everything that we do and fail to do reflects something in that time and in that moment of what we think about you. So Lord, help us to think about you the way your word tells us that we should think about you. And Lord, when we fail the test, Lord, help us to overcome. Lord, you, you're not putting a stamp and saying, well, you failed the test, you're a failure. Lord, you're showing us where you need to do some extra work in our lives to shape us and sh sharpen us. Lord, we're on a path of um, sanctification. Lord, so please, Lord, help, help us not to lose heart. Please um, work in us your faith, faith by your spirit. And Lord, Help us to hear the voice of your spirit saying this is the way, now walk in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.